Let me try that again. Good morning, Hillcrest. And good morning to everyone who's watching online. It's a delight to be with you in your living room or to have you here live as well. So thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, Barrett Croft is the head coach of the men's hockey team at Trinity Western University, and he's the hockey director for Athletes in Action, and he also manages a pro cycling team. But before that, he was a Moose Javian, and he was part of Hillcrest Church, and he was the chaplain for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders for six years. And he's one of our partners in ministry that we support, and uh, we just ask you to continue to pray for Barrett and his family as they lead lots and lots of young men to Jesus through sport ministry. It's pretty exciting stuff. Barrett is an awesome example of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going through the book of Peter. We're calling the series The Peter Perspective, and today I have a passage where I can't possibly uh, explain or, under, or um, draw out every an answer to every question that we might have about all the hot topics that are in this passage. But I'll do my best to keep us on target and help us understand the main point, hopefully. Now, Barrett's from Vancouver, and I, it's a little-known fact about myself, I was born and raised the first number of years of my life in Vancouver. And so that's my hometown. Uh, but I grew up mostly on the prairies. But in 1982, I watched my first playoff series with my dad, and it was the 1982 series between Vancouver Canucks and the New York Islanders. And uh, the Vancouver Canucks lost. And then uh, I didn't really pay much attention for 10 or 20 years, because you don't really need to with the Vancouver Canucks, because they're only good every 10 or 20 years. But in 1994, they had another run at it, back to New York, this time the New York Rangers, and they got to the seventh game, and they lost by one goal. And that was a heartbreaker. And a strange thing happened back home in Vancouver. People went out into the streets and rioted in the streets. Well... 2011 came along, and that was the next big run for the Vancouver Canucks, and this time uh, it was the Boston Bruins. The Canucks this time, for the first time, were the real favorites, but they lost that series in the seventh game as well. And, uh, and then what happened in Vancouver? Some of you might have remembered. There were riots in the street after that one as well. Now, I want you to think about it. Being a Vancouver Canucks fan, well, you know, bandwagon jumper fan as I am, uh, it's a little embarrassing when my fellow Canucks fans, now I guess I'm making an assumption there, aren't I? Maybe it's not Canucks fans who do the rioting, it's just maybe people who want to do rioting, who do the rioting in Vancouver when that happens. But I imagine if I didn't grow up on the prairies and I grew up in Vancouver, I would have watched all those same series, but I would have had interaction with people who would have gone and rioted. Maybe they would have been my friends or my school classmates or uh, my coworkers. And I would have been very interesting to chat with them about why did you go out and wreck stuff here in Vancouver just because we lost a hockey game? Uh, doesn't that seem a little trivial, something to ride over? Now, in recent days, we've experienced, in North America, we've experienced protests happening all across the country. And people are passionate about what they're protesting about. And yes, there's been some rioting mixed in. I want you to take you back to that imaginary living in Vancouver scenario. If I had friends who had rioted every time we lost the major playoff series, and then one day a great cause came along that they're really passionate about, and they said to me, Steve, I'm going to go down and join the protest downtown. And I'd say, oh, I know why you want to do that, because you want to graffiti stuff and break things and have a big party. They say, no, no, I really care about this. This is really important. I think this protest is going to make a real big difference. It's something I really believe in. How much would I take them seriously at that point? 
based on their track record. I probably might, I might be tend to, you know, I can be a skeptical guy just like anyone else, and I might think, well, no, it seems like you just will go want to be caught up in the moment and do something really exciting and, and you know, go have, uh, you know, a big hoopla downtown. I think that's what you're into. I don't think you're really into this cause. So it would be devastating if my friend truly believed in that cause, but had sort of wrecked their reputation beforehand so that when they tried to convince me about the importance of that cause, I didn't believe them because of how they lived their lives. And I believe this passage of Scripture is warning us against that outcome. Warning us against that outcome and teaching us to live a completely different type of life so we have a different outcome. So let me read to you um, from uh, this Scripture. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So one sinful desire that wages war against our soul is, is, is bitterness and the desire for revenge when we've been wrongly accused of something, you know, maybe we, our actions have been misinterpreted. People don't understand where we're coming from. And we get angry when that happens. That's a natural human response. And it even feels good sometimes to get angry when we've been unjustly treated. And these desires, though, the Bible says, war against our souls. They lie to us. They choke out the word of God in our lives. They lead to destruction. Uh, they limit the light you can see when you read the word of God. It makes it hard to see the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. When we get resentful, those desires war against our souls. And Peter's writing about this because if anyone has an opportunity to be resentful in the era that he lives in, it's Christians how they've been misunderstood, and how they've been mistreated. Do you know that Christians in the earliest uh, days of faith were under an emperor called Nero, who was very unfair towards Christians. He burned down a portion of Rome, and then, so he could replace it, and I guess get rid of some of the poorer sections of Rome. So lives were lost, property was demolished, and then he made sure that the press got out that the Christians did it. Now, the Christians were already a fairly misunderstood group of people at that time. In fact, many people believed that the Christians were cannibals. Now, why would they believe that? It's because the Christians would talk about how they remember Jesus. They talk about eating the bread, which is his body, and drinking the wine, which is his blood. So people would hear eating bodies and drinking blood, and they'd say, well, those Christians, they're cannibals. They're terrible people. And so the Christians were wrongly accused of something they were not guilty of, and Nero played on that, and so when his opportunity came to um, shift the blame away from himself for the fire in Rome, he chose the Christians, and then proceeded to kill them. So not only were they wrong, they were already had a bad reputation because of false information, and then they were uh, wrongly accused of something they didn't do, and then they were killed for it. So quite a, a lineup of unjust actions. So, watch out for those sinful desires which wage war against your soul because you're going to be unjustly treated and vengeful thoughts and anger and resentment are going to bubble up from within and you're going to need to be able to forgive like Jesus to get through it. The next verse is a key verse for the whole passage. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So I want you to see there's a progression here. 
you're living such good lives among the pagans. Pagans basically is just people who don't believe in Jesus. It sounds like a harsh word, but just really people who don't believe what you believe if you're a Christian. Do this so that though they accuse you of doing wrong, so Peter's writing this and people are going, yeah, we are being accused of doing wrong. Wrong we don't do. People say I'm a cannibal at work. I'm not a cannibal. I try to explain to them time and time again, but people can't get over the fact that they've heard through the streets. I, I don't know what to do. It's an uphill struggle for us as Christians. Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So here's Christians. They're on their way to heaven. They're having trouble on earth, but they have the hope of heaven, this incredible hope that we've talked about in 1 Peter. And uh, they're really embracing that. But Peter says, we as Christians don't just want to go to heaven and escape the trouble of this life. We want others to go to heaven with us. Who are, and we even, we even want the ones to come to heaven with us who are presently accusing us of doing wrong. Now, so if you're, if you're feeling, whoa, that's a tall order. Wanting people to go to heaven with you. Wanting people to be your spiritual brother and sister. Wanting people to be with you eternally, who currently are treating you the worst. In fact, they're unfairly treating you wrong. They're heaping scorn upon you. Well, the normal human response is vengeful desire. But we're to abstain from that sinful desire and live such a good life that those people will see how we live and then they'll have a chance to process what they believed about us and about Christianity and they'll come to a new understanding and someday they too will glory. They'll worship in who God is. They'll come to see God for who he is and his worth and his wonderfulness. So, they, so here's the progression. I wrote it down. The process from be, someone becoming your false accuser to becoming your spiritual brother or sister. They talk, right? They, ignorant talk. They accuse you falsely. What do you do? Do you defend yourself? Do you fire back with your best singers? No, you do. You do. That doesn't mean no talking. It doesn't mean you never talk to them. But it means you live such a good life. You live such a good life that they see that and they question their presupposition about you. They say, well, I thought they were sort of one of these terrible, hate-filled Christians or whatever they have as their idea about you. But it doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be borne out. I see the good that they do. I see the way that they live. And that silenced that false accusation and it gives possibility for a new phrase or new words to come into their mouths, and those are words that glorify Jesus. So what does living good lives that have the potential of changing minds this much look like? It must be pretty radical, and it is. Check out Peter, Peter's four illustrations. The first one, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Now, let's just talk about submission. The default disposition of Christians is Humility, servanthood, and submission, just like Jesus came. In, in Philippians 2, where it talks about modeling our lives after Jesus, who, though he was the Lord, though he was master, he came and he served, and he gave us an example. So Philippians 2, 3 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Or other translations say, regard others as more important than yourself. 
So humility, submission, and servanthood all lead to the attitude that says, because of what Jesus has done for me, I'm here to serve you. And that extends to even those who are mistreating you. We are a people for others because of Jesus. And this goes on to say, not only do we submit to, it says broadly, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. And for the Lord's sake is important. We'll probably come back to that. But it says, whether to the emperor, remember who the emperor is? It's Nero. So you can't hear this when you're receiving this letter and go, whoa, even him? Wow. Whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. So that could be his soldiers. It could, uh, in our pr- present day, it would be anyone who bears uh, the authority to carry out uh, the law. So police officers would fit under that category, right? So submit yourself to them as well. Who They're sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And that's how it's supposed to be. Now, I'll acknowledge that's not how it always happens. They don't always do right, right, and they don't always punish wrong. Sometimes they get it flipped. And that's, that's something that's real in our life and we have to contend with. And then it goes on, For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Here's this thought again. By doing good, the lies and the accusations and the wrong and being accused of things you haven't done, peter out and are silenced. They're stilled by doing good. So Christians, when you are being mistreated and you're being falsely accused, your natural human desire is to want revenge, to defend yourself, to prove yourself right, to get the upper hand on the other person, to show everybody how how unfair that person is. And, And, you know, there is some logical consequences sometimes for these actions. But our heart desire should be, how can I get that person to heaven? How can I live my life in such a way so that they can hear the message I've heard with, 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 in a clear way? In a clear way. You know, I said about my illustration about what if you're a person who likes to riot in Vancouver and then the great cause comes along that you really do care about and now people can't hear the value of that cause because all they see you are is a person who always disobeys, as a person who always riots, as a person who's always causing a ruckus. And you say, no, 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 but this one's different. And people say, yeah, I don't really see it. We need to live in the opposite spirit so that by doing good, we silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So, he goes on to say, live as free people. Now, you're submitting to the emperor, Nero. You're submitting to his soldiers. Or you're submitting to the government today and their, and their representatives. Right? But he says, still live as free people. What does that mean? Well, the government is not your master. As a Christian, the government is not your master. Jesus is Lord. But what Jesus requires of his followers is that they submit. Is that they submit to the government. And this is setting up a great contrast. We'll talk about this in a bit. It's setting up a great contrast between uh, when we submit, which is almost all the time, and when we don't submit, which is really, really rare. 
so rare and so unique that it stands out and it speaks volumes. So live as free people. So don't think, well, the government is my master. And the government is not your master. God is your master. But you submit to the government for God's sake. Then it goes on, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So people can go the opposite way because they can fall into saying, since I'm not a servant of this government, I can do whatever I want. I don't have to follow the law. I can disobey anything. That's what we call anarchy. And the Bible doesn't prescribe that. It goes on to say, live as God's slaves. By the way, if you read in the Bible the word slave or servant, I'll just tell you a little secret. It's the same word in the original language. Ibed or Ived, right? And it can be translated both ways, servant or slave. So if you are a, a scholar, given the job of translating from the original language into English, you have this tricky task when you come to Ived, the book, that word, because it can be said as servant or slave. And you know what? Why there was only one word for this back then was because it wasn't that dramatically different back then. Why it's so much of a trouble for us now is it's dramatically different in how we see it as North Americans. If I say servant, uh, you might think of, oh, like an English butler who works for a rich guy and makes a pretty good wage and he's well-educated and he speaks well and he goes home to his family at night and he has a decent house too. Servant, not too bad. But you think of slave and you think of the most recent and pressing reality of slavery in our world, and that's North American slavery, African American slavery, the southern states. We think about all that. So when we compare servant and slave, they are miles apart. But in the Bible, they use the same word for both, right? So the Israelites were slaved in Egypt, or they were servants in Egypt. We would say slaves because of how we see it in connection to modern-day slavery. But you know that the, that same word is used about the Egyptians themselves? Do you remember the story of Joseph sold into Egypt as a slave and then rose to second in command and then a famine and then everyone in Egypt sold their land to Joseph so that every Egyptian became a servant or slave, depending on how you interpret the word, of Pharaoh. The Israelites were not the only servants-slash-slaves, not the only Eveds in Egypt. All the Egyptians were, too. Not, there were no landowners in Egypt after the famine. There was only Pharaoh who owned it all. <laughs> so it's a little bit different. But I, so I don't want to get... So when you see God's slaves here, I, I, I take the freedom to, to say servant because it works better in how I understand it. But it's fine. Show, so live as God's servants. So I not, I'm not going to, I'm going to submit to the government for the Lord's sake. And then it goes on to say, what do some things God expects of us in that? Show proper respect to everyone. Okay, that's great. Honor everyone. Love the family of believers. Some special affection for other Christians. That's good. Fear God. So you have a proper respect for God's power and authority at the same time while you love him. Both are possible. In fact, that's required. That's Love him and fear him. It's go together. And then honor the emperor. Oh, back to Nero again. Quit talking about Nero. Nero, Nero, Nero. I can't, again, I've had enough of him. You know what? You can honor the office of somebody even when you don't honor the man or the woman. You can. I bet some of you, well, I know it's for a fact because I looked at the election results in Saskatchewan. Some of you didn't vote for the current prime minister. Some of you. 
I just looked at the numbers. I know it's true. And so if you didn't vote for the current prime minister, but if he came to your house out of the blue, I bet most of you would still give him some sort of deference, some sort of honor, and some sort of respect for the office. You'd probably say, I'm going to honor you as, even though I didn't vote for you, but I'm going to honor you because you hold the office of prime minister. So honor the emperor. So you can honor the office even when you struggle to honor the man. Now, how did Peter come to his thoughts? This is Peter's perspective, right? Peter's writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit. How did he come to some of these thoughts about we should be so submissive to the government? Well, a couple things, and they were his interactions with Jesus. Some people came to Jesus, and this is, I'm just going to reference the story really quickly, but it's out of, um, oops, it's out of Mark chapter 12. Anyhow, people come to Jesus, and they ask, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus basically says, give me a denarius, give me a, a coin. He holds it up. He says, whose picture is on it? That's Caesar. Whose insignia? That's Caesar. And then he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So, should Christians pay taxes? Well, looks like they should. Another pay taxes moment comes another time with Peter, specifically Peter. Peter's saying, hey, they're asking for a tax at the temple. There's a two drachma coin, which would have been, you know, Everybody's required to pay this two drachma coin temple tax. And then Jesus tells them this thing. He says, you know, do the, the sons of the emperor, do they pay taxes? No. And he goes on to basically give this illustration and say, Peter, we're like the sons of the emperor. You're like the sons of the emperor, right? God's your master. You're a child of the king. You're a prince, I guess, right? He's basically, I'm fleshing out the illustration, but he's basically saying, they don't, the sons of the emperor don't pay tax. But he says, but so that we don't offend the people who want you to pay a tax at the temple, go fishing. So he sends Peter fishing. And he says, when you catch a fish, this is one of the craziest miracles in the New Testament. It really is. And I love it because it involves fishing. When you catch a fish, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin in there. Take that coin to the temple and pay your tax and mine. So Jesus paid his taxes. Not to offend people. Did Jesus have to? No, he owns the universe. Did Peter have to? Well, really, the Lord is his master, not the government, but he still paid his taxes. So Peter is saying, submit to Nero. Submit to his representative. Submit to the governors. Do all of this so that when people accuse you of doing evil, they'll say, well, that's a pretty law-abiding citizen. That's a community partner. That's a person who really... Uh, is, is looking to bless the city and bless the community and bless even the empire. So now you're saying, so I just have to submit? You said I shouldn't disobey, 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 but do I have to always obey? And this is where civil disobedience comes in. Do you know that what the Nuremberg trials are? If you're older, you probably definitely do know. The Nazis were judged at the Nuremberg trials for their war crimes. So the higher-ranking Nazis who'd carried out great atrocities, concentration camps and killings and all sorts of things, were on trial. And their defense was this. We were simply following orders. How can you sentence us to death? How can you imprison us for following orders? And one of the judges at the trial, response was this. He said, gentlemen, I think we all know that there is a law higher than man's laws. In other words... There is a law that supersedes the laws of the land. And when you come in conflict with that law, 
you should disobey the government. That's what the judge was saying. You should have disobeyed your Nazi overseers who, dis who dis told you to kill those people or told you to do whatever they did. You should have disobeyed. And they were convicted based on that basis. Is there a point where Christians should disobey the government? Well, if we look at the Bible, we see that there is evidence in the Bible of civil disobedience. Now, probably the most uh, easiest one to draw on is Peter's civil disobedience. Peter and John were taken uh, in by the authorities, religious authorities, and told not to teach about Jesus. Don't preach, don't talk about Jesus anymore. And their response was basically, should we obey God or you? And a rhetorical question. The answer is, we're going to keep obeying God. No thank you, but we are going to keep preaching about Jesus, even though it's against your law. Because there's a law higher than man's laws. Now, throughout the Bible, we see lots of civil disobedience by people who God commends. Their midwives in Egypt were instructed to take the baby boys and drown them in the Nile River. But they preserved the lives of the baby boys. They lied to Pharaoh about the reason why. And then God commended them. In fact, God gave them big, bountiful families themselves as a reward for their civil disobedience. Rahab hid the Israelite slaves against the, the express direct orders of the authorities in the town of Jericho. Uh, the Israelite spies, sorry, yes, it's slaves. The Israelite spies who'd come. And she was rewarded by God for that. Her life was spared and that of her whole family. Obadiah hid the prophets of God from Queen Jezebel. He saved a hundred of them. That was civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't bow to King Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Civil disobedience. Daniel prayed in defiance to a new law, prohibiting praying to anyone but the king. And he was thrown in the lion's den for it. Esther approached the king, Queen Esther approached the king uninvited, which was against the law and possibly punishable by death. But she civilly disobeyed to save the Jews. Peter kept preaching about Jesus. So did John, right? Jesus civilly disobeyed. Do you remember the instance? He tipped over the tables of the merchants who set up shop in the temple. They were in the, tent, they were in the court of the Gentiles, and, and Jesus didn't want anything to come between the Gentiles and God, right? And so the Christians, and Christians in the end times, this is in the book of Revelation, it says, will refuse to worship the image of the beast, even though that will be civil disobedience. Martin Luther, we're talking about church history now, nailed his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg church door, and he spoke out against the practice of selling indulgences in the Catholic church, and he wouldn't repent when they demanded that he would. He was being disobedient to authorities over him. William Tyndale translated the Bible into English so the common man could read it against the laws of England and was burned at the stake for it. Corrie ten Boom and her family hid Jews in a secret room in their house to keep them safe from the Nazis and they ended up in a concentration camp for that. Bible smugglers took, have taken thousands of Bibles, maybe millions, behind the Iron Curtain into communist countries in Eastern Europe and over Asia against the law, civil disobedience. Martin Luther King Jr. used civil disobedience uh, in, to gain civil rights for black people. Uh, Rosa Parks, civil disobedience, refused to go to the back of the bus People who feel very strongly about the life of the unborn have uh, had abortion sit-ins at clinics when that is against the law. 
they have civilly disobeyed. So now it's not always easy to know as Christians which er, when is civil disobedience uh, you know, the right time to do it. But some things are clearer than others. Some are, there's a lot of gray ones, but I think some of them are clear. I think Christians should refuse to do what God prohibits and disobey when told not to do what God requires. So there's a lot of things nowadays because we live in a, a day and age where the laws are always being updated. Like every few weeks, you get an update to what you can do and what you can't do. And here at Hillcrest Church, we as a leadership team have thought long and hard about the laws that have come out and how do we implement them. And you know what our response has been? We're going to submit to the government authorities in these things. We haven't found that we've been asked to do anything yet that is a refusal to do what God requires. We haven't got to that point. And because we're complying with everything, we think it actually is the best setup for the day when we may have to civilly disobey. I doubt that it's going to be in this season necessarily. Who knows? But there may be a season down the road where you have to defy the government. And in that day, you don't want people to say, well, that's the guy who always defies the government. This is no big deal. Whatever he is being defiant about, it's just that he's defiant. We want people to say, that is the most submissive to the government person I know. If they are defying the government, something really important is going on. Something really significant is at stake. And they are defying the government at great cost to themselves. The repercussions are high. Why would anyone do this? That's an opportunity for a really serious conversation. But you've set the table for it because you submitted everywhere you could submit. So civil disobedience is permitted when the government's demands are in direct violation to God's commands. But there's lots of things you can do when you live in a democracy, aren't there? You can use nonviolent means to change a government that permits evil. You can vote, you can lobby, you can, there's lots of different things. You can campaign for changes to unjust laws. And we're commanded to pray for the leaders that we have, and it's not wrong to, play, to pray that God would intervene in his timing to change an ungodly path for our nation, including changing out governments. Not everybody agrees on when a Christian should practice civil disobedience. I would say one piece of advice I really hope that you would, if you're thinking of practicing civil disobedience, is that you don't do that as a lone ranger on your own, but you actually talk to other wise Christians. Maybe talk to your pastor if you think he's sort of wise. Before you take a stand. Because it could be that your message that you send is not clear. It doesn't elevate or exalt Jesus. And you haven't really thought it through. So I would encourage you, if you're going to civilly disobey, talk about that. And I see that throughout history, that that there often have been people who've had a conversation. Sometimes it's been solo characters like a Daniel deciding to uh, pray on his own because prayer is outlawed. But sometimes it's not. I've been saying often it's not. Often you have Christian believers that you can bounce your idea off and hopefully uh, navigate this well. Now let's go to the next one. So these are really just illustrations. Now it's strange that we have 
submitting to the government, submitting to slave masters, and submitting to ungodly husbands all in the same passage. It's like, whoa, how many minefields can you put in one passage? But I want you to see this morning that this is not, these are not primarily teachings about government slavery and husband-wife relationships. These are illustrations Peter is using to come back to his same point of living such a good life, living a submitted life, so that when you, if you, and have to make a decision that is disobedient, that it stands out, that it's not lost in the fact that you're normally disobedient or that you're just a rebellious person, but it actually stands out as being unique and it's seen and heard for what it is. So I'm going to read a little bit about this. Slaves in reverent fear of God. Remember, in fear of God, if you're a slave in slavery, your master is not your master. God is your master. God is your Lord. So doing in reverent fear of the Lord, submit yourself to your masters. So submit yourself. You, there's someone you work for. Now let me just stop, because this is so controversial. Again, you're North American. You think African-American slavery of a couple hundred years ago. That's what you think of, because that's our best reference point. That is not, it's very different from how slavery was in the Bible. Um, slavery in the, um, in the Bible is there, I, I've got lots on this. Man, I studied so much on this, I could do a whole series on slavery. But I'm just going to give one thing to you because I, time is short. Slavery is different, was different in Israel, and was different in the Roman Empire than it was in uh, the southern parts of the states. And, and this is the statement I just wrote to help you understand. Slavery in the Roman Empire in Israel was more like choosing to be a servant for a season to pay off your debts. It was choosing to be a... Most slavery in those two contexts was choosing to be a servant for a season to pay off your debts. In Israel, all debts were erased every seven years. So you couldn't be in debt. Like you, isn't that great? Like if you went to university in Israel back then, you could get all the student loans you want and they'd all be erased after seven years. That's pretty exciting news. I wouldn't you like to live back then. And uh, so you, couldn't, you wouldn't be a slave for your life. And your children wouldn't be slaves and born into slavery. And slavery in Israel was nothing about ethnicity. You weren't a slave because you were a certain skin tone. It was you were in debt. And a way to get out of debt was you would, you would choose. You would sell yourself. You'd say, I'm in so much debt. It's going to take me a while to get out. And so you'd go to somebody who could, who could pay that debt. And you'd say, I'll work for you for the next number of years. When's that year that we all get our debts canceled? Well, it's three years from now. Okay, I'll work for you for the next three years. And uh, then I'll be free of that debt. And I'll learn some skills with you. And I will swear the whole time that I'm not going back in debt. Because the borrower is the servant to the lender. That's a proverb, right? Out of the Bible. And it's true. If you have a mortgage, you know that the bank owns your house, not you. Well, hopefully you know that. You'll know that if you stop making the payments. You'll know that real fast. So slavery in the North American context was being kidnapped and owned forever, generationally, because of your ethnicity. That's radically different. Now, I'm not saying that the former is, is great, but it was more of an economic arrangement chosen by the person. Whereas slavery in North America was not, it was involuntary. You were kidnapped. You had no say in it. I, I mean, reams and reams have been written about the evil of that slavery, and it was 
deeply evil. Do you know that a lot of the slave masters, one of their intentional things with their slaves was don't let them read or write. Because if they do, they'll be able to read the Bible for themselves. And all the twists that we put on Scripture to keep them in slavery aren't going to work for very long if they can read the general theme of the Bible. Let me read you a section of the Bible, and it's about a runaway slave. His, his name was Onesimus, and it's written to the slave owner, the guy who it was his master for whatever season. And um, his name was uh, Philemon. So let me read it to you. And then I'm going to ask you a question. The answer is, the question is, what do you do with a runaway slave? Okay, listen, listen. Therefore, in Christ, I'm jumping in at verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, this is Paul writing, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love, because he has a relationship with Philemon. It is none other than Paul. It's, It's me, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Listen to how he talks about the one who is the slave, Onesimus. My son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart. That's what he says about him. Who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. Philemon had helped Paul at some point. He's saying, this guy can replace you. He's that great. He's become useful. He's he's, he's wonderful. He's my heart. I don't want to lose him. He's my son. But I do not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you would not... uh, any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. He wants a response from not saying, you got to do this, Philemon. He wants Philemon to respond from the heart, and he wants to do it. And so he says, um, I don't want any favor you would do to be forced, but I want it to be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I might have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh me. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I ask. So what do you think Philemon did? If you got that letter, what would you do? Would you go, huh, I think the application of what he's writing is that when you catch a slave, you return him to his master so he can go back to slavery. He said, that's what the harshest reading you could possibly have of that passage. But that's the reading that the slave masters gave to the slaves when they couldn't read and write for themselves. So they used the example of Philemon and say, wow, if you run away as a slave, the Bible teaches us to restore you to your master. You'll probably get a big beating and you'll really regret it. 
And so some of those slaves who came out out of slavery and began to read and see the theme and the tone of the Bible and see that the seeds of the destruction of slavery were all over its pages, they were outraged when they could finally read what the Bible said. So here you've got people in Paul's day, they're living under a form of slavery, which is not like, not nearly as harsh as what we had even in a couple hundred years ago. People say it's getting better and better. We've had some pretty awful stuff recently. But here's what he says. If you're a slave and you're serving an ungodly master, not a Philemon, who's your brother in Christ, but someone who worships the Roman gods and thinks he has every right to you know, fulfill your economic contract for as long as it goes, and he treats you harshly, and it's difficult, he says, I want, I want you to submit. I want you to submit. Now, a lot of the first century Christians were slaves. This wasn't like there was one or two slaves. A lot of these churches were slaves. A brand new thing was springing up. Here you'd have free men and slaves sharing the body and blood of Christ, the table of the Lord, the communion, the worshiping together. It was like, Whoa, something's at work here. Something's stirring here. Something's upending the way that people live. But he says, if you find yourself... See, the Bible is written a lot of times to manage the situations you're in. You look at the Old Testament. There's laws about polygamy. God doesn't love polygamy. But it was already there, and how do you manage it? There's laws about divorce. When people in the New Testament ask Jesus about that, they say, well, Moses let us have laws about divorce. He says, because your hearts were so hard. It's sin management. This isn't how God created the world. If you look at the high points of Scripture, which I think are creation, I don't think it's just me who thinks this, it's creation, how God created the world to be, and then you look at redemption, what Jesus said about everybody and about all of us through the cross. You don't see a blueprint for, you don't see divorce being God's ideal, you don't see polygamy being God's ideal, and you don't see slavery being God's ideal. But those things, when they're already in society... Someone's got to write laws, and so they wrote laws to manage. It's never as satisfying as the laws that are written to eradicate. You know, when Christians like William Wilberforce came along and and informed by Christian worldview, looked at the scriptures and said, this cannot justify slavery. This speaks about us being brothers and equals and being equal in God's sight. But what do you do when you're not free? What do you do when you're being treated unjustly by the government, now by a slave master? You bear up under the unjust treatment, and you begin to do something radical. Pray for the salvation of your master. And you submit. And you submit, and you submit everywhere you can submit, because there will come a day where that master will say, and now join me in worshiping these Roman gods. And you'll say, I can no longer submit. And you can beat me and you can kill me. But I do not submit for your sake. I do not submit so that you can have the hope that I have of an eternity with a God who loves me. I'll submit every way I'm called to submit under the law. But I will not submit here. 
When you call me to defy my true master, I will not submit. And I've obeyed you all these years so that you could tell the difference. It's for your sake. These are really hard passages. When you take this, when you read, slaves obey your masters, you think, whoa, man, this seems like the Bible's in favor of slavery. You've got to understand the context. These are radical, these are people living out a very radical obedience to Jesus and saying, I want the governor, I want Nero, I want the soldiers who might put me to death to have the chance to join me in heaven and be in my spiritual family. I want the one who beats me unfairly to see my service, my good service to him all these years. And I want when the, that one moment when I defy him because of Jesus to count for his salvation. And then you come to this, the last, or the, the third illustration is wives and husbands. But this isn't just marriage like you see in other passages. This is wives who are married to a man who doesn't love God. Man, I'm going to have to get a Kleenex here. Hang on, don't touch it. Don't touch one. It says, wives, in the same way, You've seen the examples of people submitting to government. You've seen the examples of submitting to slave masters. In the same way, you're in that predicament. You're married to a guy, and you've come to faith in Jesus, and he is still worshiping the Roman gods. In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This is radical following of Jesus. This is radical following of Jesus. Now, in other passages of Scripture, you see uh, um, submission and, and, and uh, husband and wife relationships and love and respect and all those things in a much nicer light. It's in a much nicer light. Like some, For some people, submission is a dirty word, and they can't think of it any other way. For some people, it's actually a good word because they've experienced it in a godly way. But in this passage, it's not talking about, you know, you know, submit to your husband who brings you to church and cares for you and really makes sure you're really well, you know, taken care of and all those things. That's not the reality. This is a husband who might mock you and make fun of you for your belief in Jesus. And he said, live your life. You've got eternity. You've got eternity already. You're rich beyond your wildest of dreams forever. In God. But your husband is not. And even though you're unfairly treated in this relationship, submit. Every which way you can submit. So when the day comes that you must not submit, it speaks. It's clear. It silences his wrong accusations. Live such a good life. You know, I... I, I'll say, I'll say this. I'm just barely touching on these issues as we go by. You know, the, I did read a New York Times, uh, let's see if I can find it really quickly. New York, New York Times poll they did a few years ago. 
No, it was actually last year, sorry, 2019. And in it, they, they uh, were trying to figure out who were the most, who had the hope, happiest marriages. And the title, if you want to look it up, because I think it's quite encouraging if you read it, New York Times, uh, Religious Men Can Be Devoted Dads Too, is the title. Religious Men Can Be Devoted Dads Too. Oh, good. I'm glad they also can be. Okay, so in the article, what they, what they say is they, they, they basically were asking about the happiness of marriage, right? And asking a lot of women about their happiness in marriage. And they came up with four categories of hap- of, that they could judge it by. So then um, there's two categories in the middle. And those were secular marriages. Um, no, let me take that back. No, two categories. The two lowest categories were secular marriages. But they were distinct in that one was secular and traditional. So the man's in charge, he's the breadwinner, and he, he's the boss in the home. And there's no religion in that home. There's no religion. And they were the least happy relationships. Right? Man's the head, woman listen, and... Uh, no God involved. The next one up, and that was what 33% of those marriages were happy. And then you got a little bit better. I think you got into the uh, about 50% if you added uh, progressive values, so more egalitarian. So it's sort of men and women shared chores and duties and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it's still secular. And so that got you up to about 50% happiness. Then, uh, no, it was 55, yeah. If you wanted to take a five-point jump, you replace the secular value with uh, religious values, based majority Christian, because this is the United States survey. So if those people became Christians, 5% more of them would be happy. Still holding progressive values, which is egalitarian, and men and women share everything equally and stuff like that. So they'd get you up to 60%. But if you wanted to jump to 72% and have the happiest average marriages... This is a shocker. You had to hang on to your religion, but you had to jettison your secular values and become religious again. Did I say that right? Get that? I'm not sure if I said that right. It was, the top one was um, religious, sorry, yeah, I did say that wrong. Religious and traditional. So let me just tease this out a bit. The most miserable marriages were traditional. And the happiest marriages were traditional. And what is that? How can that be? And the difference between the two is these ones don't go to church and these ones do, because going to church was how they determined whether people were religious or not. So if you go into church regularly and you're traditional, you were the happiest marriages. But if you were traditional and secular, you were the most miserable marriages. And the, most high, the two highest categories were both religious homes. What is this? I want to read you the last little bit. It's for husbands. And it's not about submission, but it's actually really important. Husbands, in the same way, be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as weaker partners and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know what? I think it's the obedience to this verse this kind of command that is the difference between the most miserable marriages and the happiest marriages. You see, when you have a traditional view of marriage, the guy's the king of the castle. If there was a throne in the house, he would sit on it, get my slippers, newspaper, pipe, food now, shut the door, turn down the thermostat, whatever dads do, right? 
So he's the king. But when you add God to the equation, the husband's not the king. He evacuates that throne so Jesus can sit in his rightful place. And the husband changes from the king to the first servant. To the one who uses his servant leadership to show what it's like. He said, this family is going to serve the Lord. It's going to serve Jesus. And I want to demonstrate it, and I want to lead in that, and I want to initiate in that. And so you've got that guy who's saying, hey, hon, let's figure out how we can get to church more often. Hey, hon, let's, let's have that tough conversation with our son. We'll do it together. You're actually better at it, so you'll probably you know, do most of the talking, but I want, I want to initiate that because I want to see things get. Let's have that talk about our finances. And so you know what? I found, so where submission is a dirty word, it often is correlated to this guy who's the bully in the home. And where sur- submission is a delight is where you have a husband who doesn't take that position that he's the master. He says, Jesus is the master. Jesus is Lord here. And I'm going to do everything I can to exalt Jesus in this house. And so I'm going to initiate with my family, and I'm going to do some things, and I'm going to lean on my wife a lot, because she's smarter, if she is. Right? Leadership doesn't mean you have all the best ideas. It just means you can spot the best ideas. I know that from leading this church. I have an incredible team. I go into meetings. I hope I get a good idea, but mostly I just spot the good ideas. You've got a good idea. You got it. You are genius. Wow. That's leadership. That's servant leadership in the home, just to say, honey, that's, I would really like it if we grew more in our relationship with God. I just don't even know how to do that. You've been to Bible college. Could you help me? Well, we could start doing this. That's genius. That's leadership. You want to go from an unhappy marriage to a happy marriage? Get off the throne. And put Jesus on it. Put Jesus on the throne. I've been just inspired this week when I've been reading this passage. At the lengths the early church was instructed to go to win their enemies. To win those who were mistreating them to the gospel. Between the first service and the second service today, someone came up to me. They just shared a quick story with me. I won't tell you all the details because I didn't get permission to share all the details, but they just basically said they had a relationship. In that relationship, things started uphill. The person thought poorly of them, but they persisted. And they just upped the ante with their good deeds in relationship to this person. And over the course of two years... They went from that person thinking very skeptically and uh, negatively towards them to where that person actually said, I'm sorry for ever thinking ill of you. You really changed my mind. And their response was them saying, well, you know what, I totally, you know, because they were coming and saying, I'm sorry, you know, basically, will you forgive me? And, And their response was, of course I forgive you. God's forgiven me for so much. If you want to set the table for the gospel to be heard, if you want to set the table for those who ridicule Christianity the most to become believers, you're going to have to follow Jesus in very radical ways. 
And you're going to have to submit to everything that you possibly can submit to so that when the day comes that you might have to disobey, that it's crystal clear why. Would you stand with me? Lord Jesus, I, I ask you to help us. This is a hard teaching. So many of your hard teachings, people just walked away at that point. They said, who can do that? And I'm in the same boat. I'm, I'm in awe of what you require of your followers. And yet, it makes total sense because you did it. You blessed those who cursed you. Those who used you, you prayed for. You forgave those who killed you. You, you forgave me. All my, I didn't deserve your forgiveness. I don't deserve your leadership. And so, I ask for your help. I ask that you'd help me. You'd help each one who's hearing me right now. I pray you'd help them in this very high bar that Christians are called to. To live such good lives among people who don't believe, so that when they see our good deeds, something will change in their thinking. That there's that possibility that they'd come to see that, no, this is not evil. I've said this is wrong. I've said this is evil. i said this is ignorant. And now I see it as good. And I see the God that they serve as good. And I'm ready to embrace Him. Lord, help us to live the radical lives that have been modeled for us by you, by your early followers in the New Testament who weren't perfect people, and they probably stumbled in all of these things too. But Lord, help us press on towards the things you've called us to do in this world. Help us to live the lives you're calling us to. We ask that in your name. Amen.